Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. In today's episode, Nancy Nagorny and Joshua Peske join me to talk about managing cybersecurity threats. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our first guest today is Nancy Nagurney, Director of Finance and Operations at Her Justice. Welcome, Nancy. Thank you. Glad to be here. So, Nancy, tell me a little bit about Her Justice, who you guys serve, what you do. What we do is Her Justice works to connect women living in poverty with volunteer attorneys from the large law firms in New York City. And uh, we work specifically within the areas of family matrimonial, and immigration law. We do this by recruiting and mentoring volunteer lawyers in New York City to provide free legal help to address individual and systemic legal barriers. We are also committed to improving the civil civil justice system, the civil justice system experience, and of course the outcomes for these same women living in poverty through our policy, very robust policy and advocacy work. And in your role as director of finance and operations, what what are you responsible for? It's all things financial, all things fiscal. We do get some government uh, government money. It's, of course, just the business of having a business. You know, like most nonprofits, we, we, we're just a business like anything else. And we are here, my department is here to make sure that our staff, our legal team, our development team, are able to do the work that they need to do to help women. We just know at the end of the day, if we do our job well, we are hopefully doing some good. So as part of your role, are you overseeing the IT function as well? Yes, I do, actually. So I do finance operations and IT. Okay. Um, Really what I always like to think about it is anything that nobody else wants to do or take care of. Basically, that's, that's what my department is responsible for. I know you've had some cybersecurity issues over the course, well, in recent history. Tell us, tell us about that. Actually, we've been very fortunate. And uh, we've, <laughs> I, I know this isn't supposed to be a plug uh, for, you know, a particular outsourced IT vendor, but, um, but really we are only really difficult situation and really bad experience was we got hit with CryptoLocker about four to five years ago. And um, we were one of the first. So, we, we, we were unaware of it. We didn't know. We you know, made the mistake of clicking on a link, um, not even thinking about it, and boom, uh, all of our data um, and, uh, was just was gone. We couldn't access any of it. We were so unprepared. We thought we were. We thought we were doing off-site backup. We were um, being careful. We um, talk to our staff about spam and what to do and what to look for, but we weren't training them constantly. And it was a new employee. You know, we, we, we have an IT director and we had an IT director at that time, but in addition, we used an, uh, an outside, uh, an outside vendor to help us through this. And it taught us a lot and it allowed us to <laughs> learn from our six. We were able to get back most of our, uh, most of what was sort of, um, held ransom um, through our backups, but we also realized that we weren't being good about checking our offsite backup and making sure that it was easily accessible and that they were covering all of our different uh, servers and sections and drives. So it was a learning experience. We were fortunate that we did not have to pay um, and it made us much more aware uh, at an early time to make sure that we knew that this was important. 
makes sense. This is, it's, it's actually, this is like my worst nightmare and it's really terrifying. Um, and it's a perfect segue to our next guest, Joshua Pesque from Roundtable Technology, who is a cybersecurity guru. Uh, welcome, Joshua. Thank you, Amy. Very happy to be here. Hi, Nancy. Joshua, tell us a little bit about who you are and what Roundtable does. Yeah, so I'm Joshua Pesque. Um, my title is one of these goofy titles. So I'm VCIO slash cybersecurity. So the, the VCIO stands for Virtual Chief Information Officer. And essentially, I help folks like Nancy who are thrown into uh, being responsible for the IT function at a nonprofit with how do you do that effectively and how do you manage your vendors and your staff and make sure that you're serving the needs of your organization through your technology, the strategic side of it that someone like Nancy who's incredibly smart and incredibly capable in so many different ways may not have the technology background to know, you know, hey, is this IT person that's working for me doing a good job or, you know, what systems do we need to work on, right? Um, Roundtable is what's referred to as a managed service provider. And full disclosure, you know, we are her justices, I, you know, managed service provider and were at the time of the incident that Nancy describes. Organizations that need some help managing their IT, either fully outsourcing it or supplementing their personnel will come to Roundtable and we'll help them with that, whether it's through a project or through an ongoing service or strategic help or technical help. That's what we do. Quite honestly, I'm seeing this happen a lot uh, with our own clients, um, especially when it comes to situations like Nancy just described. We have someone click on a link and then they're wiring money to heaven knows who. This is a real problem. Nancy, I'm curious, once again, as from an accounting and finance perspective, how did this impact the whole function if your data was effectively shut down? What happens with something like this, whenever you have any emergency in any organization, everything stops. Everything stops until this is fixed. And so, and, and until we can, we're able to move forward, nothing else can move on. Not checks, not processing, not dealing with any, anything else in operations. It was all hands on deck, including some of our program staff, in order to make sure and to get uh, roundtable the information they needed to be able to go through and make sure that um, we had all the files that we, that we needed and that we thought might have been lost. And in, in a nonprofit, you know, the people are the, the, are the services that we're providing. And when everything stops and you can't provide the services they, that, uh, that are needed for, um, for the women that we serve, uh, if in the operations or the finance department, we're not here providing, providing services to our constituents, which are our staff, then everything stops and things get halted and everything gets, gets far behind. And as we all know, uh, especially in a nonprofit staff, everybody's overworked, overworked, underpaid, um, and time is always of the essence. It's the other thing with even trying to make sure that uh, these staff are trained properly and make sure they, this is not what they do. They're, they are concerned with uh, providing legal services and are counting on the operations staff, the IT staff, to provide, to make sure that everybody's safe and everything's safe and that we can access our data. But it's not just the responsibility of the senior leadership team. It's not just the responsibility of operations or IT. Everybody has to be trained. Everybody has to be vigilant. And so Joshua, what did, what did you do? How did they avoid paying? And how quickly did you get them back up and running? I'm just curious. <laughs> Like Nancy said, in a weird way, you know, this was kind of fortunate for Roundtable and and less so, but in a in a small way, I think fortunate for her justice. In that, um, what Nancy talked about, CryptoLocker, 
CryptoLocker was an early version of what's known as ransomware. And there are many different variants of it. CryptoLocker was the variant that Her Justice got hit with. And um, around that time, Her Justice and one other roundtable client in that same year got hit with ransomware attacks. And this is, I want to say, around five years ago. So when this wasn't you know, anywhere near the prevalence it is now, and you weren't reading stories about it in the newspaper. So we at Roundtable, who thought we had pretty good practices with our clients, and Her Justice is in many ways an exemplary client in that they've always been a great partner in terms of, you know, listening to the recommendations we make. So the fact that our response and recovery from that for them took a lot longer than we would have liked it to and wasn't 100% complete, there was some data that we were ultimately not able to recover, um, those were real concerns for us and caused us to look at our practices and where were gaps that allowed this to happen and made our recovery so poor. And that that happened five years ago wound up putting us kind of, I think, ahead because we got this early test of our system that unfortunately wasn't a test and cost her justice real time and, and resources and, and heartache. You know, a couple of things I would say that have improved a lot with her justice, we weren't as forceful about encouraging staff training. And after that year, we implemented what we now do annually, which is the free, the best free one hour uh, cybersecurity awareness training ever, which we do every year. Our sixth one will be in January. We make it free to all of uh, the, the nonprofit universe, but we strongly encourage our clients to send their staff. We provide free private awareness training to all of our clients. So if they'll give us time. And so for her justice, if Nancy schedules a staff training, will myself or one of my colleagues will deliver an awareness training to them anytime they ask. And now we have an awareness training platform that we ask clients to participate in that's part of their support package. That wasn't in place at that time. And that exposure is you know, part of what led to the breach. The other thing is that the recovery systems that were in place, while we thought they were good, like we're backing up what we thought were all their files, there were a couple of gaps in the process that led to that recovery being slow. One, we hadn't really tested what's called the recovery time objective. So we hadn't had a conversation with Nancy that said, you know, how long, if, if, if all your data just disappears <laughs> because of CryptoLocker, you know, can you be down for a day, for three days, for five days? And we hadn't looked at our own system to be like, how long would it really take to do a full recovery? Because we really hadn't thought about that as you know, we the, the backup system was more like someone's going to accidentally delete 20 files or one person's going to get hacked and all their files are going to delete and we'll restore them and that'll take an hour and it'll be fine. And that had happened multiple times and had worked fine multiple times. But recovering all of it turned out to take multiple days and, and involve a lot of error correcting that was very time consuming for us and her justice that was miserable for everybody. Um, and so having those conversations and testing, what is your restore really going to look like if you have to restore all of it? And understanding that is really important. The other kind of, not to get too technical, the recovery point objective wasn't something. So if my memory serves, the backup system we had in place at that time essentially took a snapshot every evening. So they were at risk of losing a day's worth of work from where the you know, the safe backup was. There were other backup systems in place, but those ultimately got hit by the ransomware attack as well. So all the work they'd done up until the moment this person clicked on the link was lost. And that was also something that we hadn't had an open conversation with her justice. Like, 
we need to be doing every 15 minutes or maybe we can't even lose 15 minutes worth of data. What's your recovery point objective and are your backup systems sufficient for that, right? And nowadays, for anyone who's thinking about this now, how secure are those backup systems from the same pathways that attackers would be getting at your data in the first place? Because if the backup systems are in any way connected to the same accounts, the cyber criminals are absolutely going after your backups as well. And we'll make sure those are gone before they send that ransomware notice. What are like the top three tips that you would give to anyone listening to this? Maybe like the top three tips from this webinar, this training webinar that you're referencing. Sure. I mean, I, I, I do trainings all the time and the, the top three are actually really easy for me. I mean, at number one, no question, multi-factor authentication, which unfortunately is a, is a term that may people may find intimidating or complex. It means in addition to a username and a password for something like your email or your file sharing system or your CRM, your Salesforce, um, you also require that someone has some form of authentication that requires something they have usually. So it's going to require a text being sent to their smartphone and they'll have to put in a code or even better, like an app that's on the smartphone that has a six-digit code that changes or a push where it's like, Amy, it looks like you're trying to log into Salesforce from New York right now. Is that true? You hit yes. And then the login proceeds, right? There's a variety of these, but having that in place on your critical systems, number one, for sure. Number two, to Nancy's point, train your staff, train your staff, train your staff, train your staff on the kinds of threats that are out there, on social engineering, on what's what are good security practices. Have clear policies for your organization. Make sure your staff know what they are. But most importantly, like regularly train and test your staff. Uh, um, and then the third one is to the point we talked about earlier, your backup and recovery systems. Like really know like <laughs> where, where, where are critical you know, data and information? Are we backing them up? Are we confident that those backups will be safe from a ransomware attack if the ransomware attackers get all the other stuff? And how long is it gonna take us to recover if this thing happens? You know, when we get the emails of somebody wanting, hey, can, you know, you need to bring money to a, a secure locker. Hi, this is EED. You're using the name. Uh, I need you to write a check for me. We, you know, of course, in the finance department, we get it all the time. We actually had the experience of huh, it being sent to the treasurer of our board. And, uh, you know, so training the board, it was also really important to us. Fortunately, he was, uh, he was on an airplane or was getting on an airplane. He sent it to me. He's like, hey, can you help me with this? You know, our our chair wants this. And, and I'm like, our chair wants what? And um, he's like, no, no, you just need to get it done. Let me read it to you. It's like really important. I'm like, okay, sure. I'll, I'll absolutely take care of it. Obviously being trained, having the experience, I was able to like pick up the phone and call the chair and be like, well, you know, what, what is this? Or, you know, and, and I was able to email him back and say, just delete it. Do not click on it. Do not respond. Because he had been talking back and forth with the person who was representing themselves as our chair. So this is such a case for having strong internal fiscal controls. So Nancy, what have you, what ha, like, what are some of the internal control procedures you've implemented since this? Well, I mean, in one way, we're fortunate. It's not a very big department. Um, and we'll have, uh, um, and, and also our, you know, our board, our board has, you know, can connect to us uh, individually. They know us. Uh, they're very comfortable sending an email, picking up the phone and calling us. And of course, taking a call from us. 
that's something else. It's one thing for them to reach out, but also they're respectful enough that if we reach out to them, so that that you know that's not really internal control, but that is all about relationships and um, making sure that the board and of course staff feels comfortable reaching out. You know that a, an assistant, an office assistant, a legal assistant feels comfortable reaching out to me or to our finance manager to ask to ask a question, know that that's okay. Um, regarding, I mean like any nonprofit or even any business, you know, before you can make any transfer, you need two people. Even getting cash, you just can't get that much cash. You know, that there has to be several people who sign off on that. Joshua, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm, I'm like truly terrified for you to tell me the answer. We use platforms like bill.com um, and there are others out there as an accounts payable system. And the reason why we tout these systems is because there, there, there's like a, there's a control mechanism and you need X person to approve and then the next person to approve. And we always feel that these, these types of systems, they're, they're safe because they're online and they're cloud-based and are they safe? <laughs> in, in general. So, so all these systems are, are generally pretty good, especially the big, the big vendors, but you have to understand that they, they're, you're involved in what's referred to as a shared security model. So if you think of something like, you know, Google or Microsoft 365 and the accounts you have there, right? Google and Microsoft are protecting their side of things. So they're ensuring that a hacker doesn't come in through their systems and gain access to Amy's information. But you have your own username, password, and practices that you have to log into your account. Well, if you don't have good practices there, someone can get your password because your password is password or Amy is one, two, three, or whatever it is, and you don't have multi-factor turned on. So they simply log into your Google account because they're easily able to guess the password or steal it. And now they get access to all your data. That wasn't Google's fault, right? It was this shared security practice and you really didn't hold up your end. So on the managing third-party risk, right? The bill.coms, the Google and everything is its own industry of stuff. And there's things you can look at. For example, do they have something called a SOC 2, which is a compliance report that shows they've, you know, where someone's looked at what are their security practices over a given time period and are they sufficient? Um, there's a lot of other frame, you know, security frameworks that people can use to demonstrate that they have good security practices. And that would be hard for someone like you or Nancy, to some degree, even me, to evaluate very well. But there are platforms out there that will help you do that and people like me that will help you do that. Um, but for your side, it's the same practices, right? So for your people that are using Bill.com, make sure strong passwords that they're not reusing anywhere else, using multi-factor authentication, that they're you know not using it on like their 12-year-old computer that hasn't been updated in six years and has God knows how many viruses on it, right? So the attacker might be just watching everything they do. Like that's where your side of the practices and policies come in. We've definitely seen the multi-factor. I actually, like even a week or two ago, I got a text at 11 o'clock at night saying like, here's your code for Google. And it was really scary. Um, and it really made me happy that we have this <laughs> turned on and that we, we, because I would have, my email would have been compromised. Um, yeah, yeah. By the way, change your password for that account if you haven't already. Oh, I changed it in like 30 sec. I literally went like flying over <laughs> to my email and I changed yeah, my yeah. password and I changed every password of everything I had because yeah. I was just, it's scary. And, and being, being remote, um, everybody on a laptop, 
Uh, kids using your business laptop is not a, yeah, uh, not great. And also there's so much information out there that's of public knowledge um, that we find makes it more difficult. I mean, with all the PPP loans that are out there, every nonprofit is doing it. We have, and of course, on our websites, we put out names and email addresses and um, all of this is just, and, and, and we're giving out personal information of our, of our ED and of my personal information for who's filling this out, how are we getting at our cell phone numbers, all these different, I mean, incredible amount of information. We got a call just a couple of weeks ago from TD Bank, uh, who is our um, is our bank, and someone had gotten a hold of our uh, ED's information and a lot of information, date of birth, social security number. Uh, I mean, it's and it's just out there for whatever reason. You could have been shopping at Home Depot and not too. You want to you, know. you want to scare the pants off yourself not to but like oh they tried yourself, to get a loan they tried to get a loan a and budget they about it. no give yourself a budget of ten dollars go yeah. to spokio.com and just pay for access to a couple of identities yourself someone you love and just watch how much data you can buy for like five dollars I can go buy for five bucks you know all your family where they live their addresses their phone numbers their social security numbers you know all your kids names where they went to school where you went to school. All of it, one profile, one page, five bucks. You're like the Grim Reaper. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah I will help. say we, we with our trainings, we try to make it fun. We we we, uh, we keep it terrifying. We've we've had multiple people who attend our training, so that was really fun and really terrifying. So we describe ourselves as like the thrill ride of cybersecurity training. We're like we try to keep it really fun and funny, but yeah, unfortunately, it's tough. Something I say a lot of times when I'm doing training is like that the easiest, you know, attackers will do the things that are the easiest. What they ultimately want from most nonprofits is their money, not their data. And the easiest way to get your money is to simply ask for it. And it is quite shocking how successful that is. And people kind of laugh at like, well, I'm not just going to give money to cyber criminals. Well, of course not. But it looks like emailing the new finance admin who just started two days ago and saying, I need $1,500 of gift cards from the ED because we posted that to social media. So someone knew and all that. And we target new employees. It can look like, um, and this is where bill.com wouldn't be able to do anything about this, right? Someone's compromised the email of a vendor that you work with. You're supposed to send them a check. And two days before you're supposed to send them the check, you get an email from their actual email account that says, hey, we've just changed our bank account. Here's our new ACH information or here's the wire transfer. Can you please just update it to that? You happily do that. You enter it all into bill.com. And then a month later, that vendor says, why haven't you paid us? And you're like, we did pay you. And they're like, no, you didn't. <laughs> um, and that's like super common. It's referred to as business email compromise. And this is by far the most common way that nonprofits are going to lose money to cyber criminals that because it's so easy for them, a ransomware attack, like what they did to, to her justice five years ago, it's a lot of work. You know, we gotta, we gotta hack systems, encrypt all the data, delete the backups, write a ransom, hope they pay us, wait months, give them, you know, they gotta go get Bitcoin. It's like the whole thing's a huge hassle. If I can just get them to give me $1,500 in gift cards with a simple email, way better. So I, I thank you for bringing that up. Joshua, because that is that is a new financial control, internal control that we do use. Uh, we it, it is our custom and our um, to get a verbal over the phone confirmation from any place that we will be making a um, 
a wire transfer too. And the exact same thing is certainly with all of the uh, um, all of our donors, especially our institutions, law firms, and corporations. Uh, this year, in particular, in the last six months, we have confirmed over the phone with every one of them verbally. One person has to send the email, so the finance manager would send the email with the information, and then I would do the verbal confirmation, and they would have to call me. And I think with systems like Bill.com, the vendor gets prompted with an email to enter their banking information. So I don't actually think we can do it because I, 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 I'm thinking about this as you're talking. But, but I would argue this, is, this might be a reason to use a platform like that versus online bill pay or something like that where it is all manual and you are relying on individual accountants to, to make updates and changes. To Nancy's point, like when we do our awareness training, you know, we, we teach the magic word verify. And, you know, what Nancy's talking about is, you know, that's always a voice verification. And I think in financial systems, especially, it is really that magic word. So whatever system you're using, if, if anytime money is going to change hands, and especially if, if it's a big number, and especially if it's like someone's asking for something at the last minute to change about how that money's moving there has to be a verification process that that is that you have a high level of confidence in that isn't over an email that you may suspect is compromised and remember that these things are two ways so you might be perfectly secure on your end but if the vendor or the other end the other party gets compromised and the integrity of their messages are are not there then even though you're secure, you're still getting tricked into sending money to a wrong place because of the other party um, ultimately had their security compromised. And only through a verification process that you have confidence in can you expose those problems. So what can you do if you fall victim to one of these, these emails? So I would say ahead of time, having a cyber liability policy and making sure you understand very clearly what's going to be covered and not. So you can ask specific questions of your uh, whoever's crafting that policy for you. Would we be covered in this scenario? What about that scenario? What if someone just gives out $1,500 in gift cards, you know, because they got fooled? Are we covered for that? What's our deductible? What if we wire $120,000 out to a criminal? Other than that, it's going to the FBI and they're they're really not going to do much for you. Are you seeing anything else, any other cybersecurity, big cybersecurity threats that our listeners should potentially be aware of? You know, it's a bunch of things to try to gain um, access to an email account, which I can then leverage to either just try to get you to give me money that way or to, you know, move from that account to other privileged accounts within a system to Salesforce or to a network of file shares or whatever it is so that I can figure out how to monetize. It's all about, for most of nonprofits out there, it's just criminals trying to as quickly and painlessly as they can monetize some kind of a breach. So the ransomware attacks that, that you're reading about aren't really the primary threat for most nonprofits because that, for the most part, is only for organizations that have a lot of infrastructure. So if you still have a lot of servers that have a lot of files on them and applications, yeah, ransomware is a threat for you. But most of the smaller nonprofits that I'm guessing are your audience, Amy, you know, are they, if they're mostly in the cloud, you know, ransomware is not really what's going to hit them. It's going to be this business email compromise. Nancy, are you, from a training perspective, how, how frequently are you educating your team on, on these types of situations? Not frequent enough. It's never enough. And uh, we do try to send out examples, 
especially when um, uh, when people in our organization receive something and they'll send it to me, be like, hey, I think this might be phishing. And the answer is, yep. Uh, yeah, that is. And then we may like send out an example or remind everybody. And also we're, we uh, have enrolled our staff in the Defendify platform. So every month they send out a video, uh, sometimes two, twice a month, but mostly once a month. And we are um, really trying to hold our staff accountable to watch those videos. It's so funny because since COVID uh, and most of us have been working, you know, not from the office. But we send out the senior legal team, uh, the senior um, leadership team sends out a morning email and uh, just to be like remote together and, you know, just checking in or just something to like unite everybody. And so send out these morning emails and mine in honor of, you know, or thinking about this, this podcast was all about Defendify and uh, <laughs> reminding them gently yet firmly that it is their responsibility. The videos are fun. They are enjoyable. They are short, but everybody needs to be reminded. And know that it is it is part of their job. It's part of the responsibility as a staff member to watch these and be vigilant. So Nancy, just to wrap things up, what, what is the most important thing you've learned throughout this process? I, I will say it again, training staff. And uh, But the second thing is, don't ever be afraid to ask a question and, and always be open to having staff reach out. You know, we, we constantly talk about urgency you know, in the nonprofit world. And, uh, and especially when we're discussing things like diversity, uh, equity, inclusion, um, acts, things like that. Well, you know what? Or, you know, we need to make sure that we need to stop and focus and think and ask. Thank you, Nancy and Joshua, so much for participating. This was great. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, and this episode was produced by David Hoffman, Charlotte Moore-Lambert, and Alex Brower. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next week.